Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Thorpe is coming in. Gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by a trailblazer, Taekwondo's first Olympic gold medalist. The daughter of showbiz parents, Melbourne-born Lauren Burns was one of only three Aussie women to win individual gold at the 2000 Sydney Games, along with Kathy Freeman and Susie O'Neill. A member of the Order of Australia and a Sport Australia Hall of Famer, Lauren is now one of the country's most sought-after motivational speakers. Makes sense. She's got plenty of her own material, and hers is an amazing story. Lauren, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Olympic gold medalist. Does it ever get old hearing that? (laughs) Well, it's funny because I I guess because I do so much, I'm always sort of out in the community doing doing things. It feels very much a part of who I am now. But when I watch the Olympics, you know, every quad and watching that, you know, every four years, I'm just like, oh, my God, that's what I was doing. And so that sort of puts it a lot more in perspective. Where do we find you at the moment, Lauren? I'm in Melbourne. And yeah, I'm just, I've been, you know, doing speaking engagements for the last, you know, 25 years. And really that's what, what I'm doing, practicing as a naturopath. I've just finished my PhD on athlete lifestyle and mindset. So that's good to have that one done. And Congrats. Bag. Congrats. Oh, thank you. Looking, yeah, looking after two gorgeous kids and working with the AIS. And, you know, I never thought I'd actually be back working with athletes. I really needed a break after I finished my sport and it's sort of, it's come, I've come full circle. So I'm really enjoying being back in the space working with athletes and mentoring them getting ready for Tokyo and beyond. Yeah well hasn't that been a process hasn't it you must have uh, some real empathy I guess for the current crop that are, that have faced so much uncertainty to get to Tokyo. Yeah I, you know I don't think there's you know there's any athletes that have been through what this group are going through but and I guess it's the closest that you know other athletes can really relate to is you know injuries and setbacks and disappointments and in those those ways so you know I guess the coping mechanisms and strategies to to roll with it and be able to adapt and 
mm. have that sort of psychological flexibility is is the same. But you know, this is so unique. I mean, it's just amazing, and I I think this it'll be unique. And you know, I mean, there's been lots of Olympic games before that have been, you know, highly political. Or there's there's always stories around the the, the games and what's happening on the planet. <laughs> so it, it is going to be really interesting. Oh, your insights will be so valuable as well. I mean, your journey such an amazing one. So speaking of journey, let's go back a fair way, can we? Now, where was home as a kid, Lauren? I grew up in the Dandenong Ranges, up in Alinda. And it was sort of a bit of an idyllic childhood, really, in that we had this beautiful property. And my parents were both in the entertainment industry, so they were able to work a lot. You know, it was very flexible hours in a way. And, you know, when my dad was off singing and touring, sometimes we'd go with him to beautiful places. You know, if he was doing a residency, I remember he did one up at Threadbow. And so we went and we were skiing and hanging out. And, you know, it was just, it was a really, you know, it was a, I feel very blessed to have a, a great childhood up there in the mountains. (laughs) And I can only assume as well, it was a very musical and artistic household because your father, Ronnie, was, as you said, a singer-songwriter. And some people listening today might remember the band called The Flies in the the 60s. He was was the (laughs) front man, of course. And then your mum, Maggie Stewart, now Maggie Burns, obviously was a dancer and choreographer. So I can imagine it was, there was always music in the house, very artistic. There was. Unfortunately, I didn't inherit any of the musical (laughs) talents. I think I got got a bit of flexibility from my mum's dancing and a bit of her, you know, well, both of their sort of grit and resilience, I think, but I certainly didn't get any of the musical talents. But yeah, Ronnie was always singing around the house. And, you know, as a teenager, he'd wake me up in the morning with sitting on my bed with a guitar and, you know, singing as loud as he could. And I'd have my head under the doona just going, go away, dad, you know, shut up. Well, it must have been amazing having a lead singer as an old man. That's amazing. Well, it was just so normal. And, you know, I guess it was even when I was, when I was a teenager and I would, you know, go to the shops or whatever with, I'd go out with my family and, you know, I'd have a friend with me or whatever. And they'd just be like, why are those people coming up to your dad? And why? <laughs> and, it, you know, wanting his autograph or just wanting to chat to him. Like people just knew him wherever he went. So that was just really normal. I never thought anything of it until my friends started asking me how that felt and how weird it was. <laughs> and si- yeah, so. siblings? You had a younger brother? Have a younger brother? Yeah, I've got a younger brother, Mike. So he was seven years younger than me. So, um, you know, we were really close uh, growing up uh, even it's funny because my kids now are very close in age and they fight all the time and I just don't understand it because you know we had such a big age gap that we just you know got along so well I think I was more like I was you know a second mum to him really I was always looking after him and helping him with things when he was little and and where was school for you Lauren? So well I started off in Alinda Primary and then I came went down to Melbourne and uh, I went to a school in Kew called Press Hill which is a progressive school that funnily enough doesn't believe in any competitive sport yes so mum and dad they were very much into you know they're into whole food cooking they're into meditation they followed a you know guru Maraji back in those days they were doing all sorts of different things around meditation and food and they wanted a school that was sort of a little bit different and they'd heard great things about Press Hill so along I went there and I loved it I really thrived in that environment it was great for me I, I enjoyed that sort of having a little bit more autonomy over my learning and but I didn't certainly didn't have a traditional 
sporting upbringing in terms of, you know, at, at school. And it's interesting with the work that I've been doing with my PhD studies in looking at what creates champions. And actually one of the things that's really what they say is great in a foundation for athletes is unstructured play and early diversification in lots of different sports. And so I feel like I had that to you know in many ways even though I didn't have that sort of competitive sporting upbringing I didn't really know how to do I had to teach myself and sort of learn how to become to understand you know training in that sense and you mentioned food Lauren am I right in saying you became a vegetarian at a young or very young age (laughs) yeah I did I was um well I mean mum and dad decided that they wanted to be vegetarian first and I was about two and a half and then they explained it to me and I was like no I still want to keep you know eating those horrible processed chicken slices at the supermarket and all those <laughs> lovely things <laughs> and and then I just I was about three and I just said I don't want to eat my friends anymore and that was it so I've been vegetarian ever since and my parents now eat a little bit of meat or Ronnie certainly does and you know his dad was a butcher so that was that was tricky but my brother and I have always been vegetarian and and that that was that was hard not hard in a sense of that it, it took a lot of discipline and understanding to be a vegetarian athlete because I had to be quite diligent in what I was eating and also to convince people that I was going to be okay and that I could do it because back then, you know, even it's not that long ago, but in 2000, there wasn't a lot of vegetarian athletes and the dietitians were just saying, you know, you just can't, you can't do it. There's no way you can get the protein. Yeah. But I was like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Uh, it is interesting, isn't it, Lauren? And I mean, not to stereotype at all, but all this—I mean, the, the the diet, the the schooling, the fact you played little sport as a as a child, and maybe even had little urge to do so—is a long, long way off taking on full contact martial arts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. And I think even when I finally went out, you know, when I did go to the club, and you know, I started because my brother wanted to be a teenage mutant ninja turtle. Yeah, is that true? He, is that the real trigger, Tina? A Hollywood film can be credited for your, uh, I guess, sliding doors moment? Yeah, well, he was obsessed and he just loved Ninja Turtles and was jumping around the house doing ninja jumps all over the place. And then one day he went flying through a window in the lounge room and that was it. They sent him, my parents sent him down to the local club and then dad started. And, you know, talk about martial arts or any martial art you can do at any age. And, you know, I, I think martial arts is great all humans really um but dad started and they would do it together and they always wanted me to come down with them and I always thought oh, I'm not gonna you know I don't want to just hang out with little ninja turtle kids or old men and you know I mean my dad was in his 40s then but I was like middle-aged guys but you know when I finally went along there was lots of people my age and young teenagers and I was 14 when I started coming back to what you were saying about the full contact martial art you know even though dad had encouraged me to go along he did think I won't buy her a uniform yet because she'll probably quit after a couple of weeks or she'll get one box to the head and that'll that'll be it (laughs) speaking like a true parent no doubt about it um (laughs) fantastic are you listening to this is your sporting life all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals a family-owned business since 1934 well next let's revisit it shall we a teenage Lauren Burns tags along to a taekwondo class with her brother Michael and we'll talk about how the seed was planted. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We're with Olympic gold medalist Lauren Burns. So, Lauren, that very first taekwondo class with your brother and your dad, what, honestly, walking away, what was your first impression? It was a pretty classic teenage response, I have to say, and it was like, yeah, that was good. It was all right. I'll come, I'll come back again. <laughs> so there certainly wasn't, you know, a lightning bolt of passion or this is what I'm meant to do or this is my calling. It was just, yeah, oh, that was, that was good. It was cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did go back the next week and then I went back the next week and it just sort of continued like that. And it wasn't this incredible sort of love of it. I just, but to get me back, you know, to get a 14-year-old girl going back there, you know, especially on a, you know, early Saturday morning class and all of that. So, you know, that that really held my interest. But it wasn't until I started competing, actually, that I really kind of got that hunger for it and that love of, of the sport and the martial arts. And we touched on your dad, Ronnie, before the break there. He actually said years later, after you won gold in, in Sydney, he, he's on the record as saying they fully expected you to get hit in the face and come home crying after that first class. <laughs> yeah, they did. Well, yeah, he was just like, you know, this would be great for her. She'd love it and it would be really good. And obviously, you know, like I think it's great for um, for everyone, as I said, to do a martial art, but particularly, you know, for young girls, learning martial arts was fantastic. So, but he was pretty prepared for me to, yeah, take a, take a kick to the head or, you know, get a bit of a knock around and then, then that'd be it. <laughs> Yeah, but they do say, it's the old cliche, isn't it, Lauren, that sports like this don't build character, they reveal it. So what did these early forays into this sport, this pretty tough sport, teach you about yourself? So I think as I was bumbling along and just going to classes, I I sort of started to understand about, you know, a bit of discipline and regularity and, and consistency in going to class. But it was really when I went in my first competition because what happened was I... I went along to this comp. I'd been popped in by my instructor. I didn't even know there was a sports side of taekwondo. So I'd never seen a tournament. I'd never actually practiced for a tournament. So I didn't know the rules. I didn't, I'd never worn any of the gear before. Rocked up. I'd gone out to a party the night before. I'm 16 at this stage. Rock up at the Coburg Town Hall. There's like this crazy noise everywhere, like people yelling and screaming and all the rings going, all the fights happening concurrently, all the parents club members screaming and you know as we're standing at the door my parents are like oh my goodness what are we doing here and my mum just said Lauren there's no way you're competing these people are crazy so let's get out of here and I was like no no it's cool it's cool so I didn't compete till late in the afternoon I was tired we waited all day finally I competed against this girl and you know we we just looked so similar we were you know very evenly matched and the fight you know just before I went in the ring I had this incredible sense of you know attack of nerves and I felt like I couldn't even lift my legs and my instructor kind of pushes me in the ring. Then the opposite happens. I can't stop kicking. We're both arms and legs flailing everywhere. Neither of us are scoring. We're both exhausted. <laughs> and I think there's that, you know, when you first go in an event, you know, you can often, you just get so nervous. And so, you know, coming into the last round, there's still no score. And she does this kick and it comes up and it just clicks my face. I'd never taken a kick to the face before and I could taste blood in my mouth. So I had a mouth guard in, but all I was focused on is this blood. And the referee's standing there giving me the eight count to make sure I'm okay. And the first thing I see out of the corner of my eye is my mum, and she's just burning down the stairs, and she's going, go, Lauren, smash her, kick her in the head, you know, she's yelling <laughs> and screaming. And 
I lost the fight and I, I just came away and I thought, oh, my God, that is the worst sport ever. I'm never doing that ever again. So I threw in the towel and then I got home that night and I just started to thinking, thinking about it over and over and over and I kept playing the fight over in my head and I kept thinking to myself, I didn't really do my best in the ring. You know, like I couldn't have done my best because of, I was so nervous and I couldn't think straight what I'd like to do is to go back and try and be better and I think that that sentiment that happened in that very first fight was the same sentiment that I had when I walked in that ring at the Olympic Games like I I can be better and it was every competition every training it was like how can I be better and one of the things that I particularly loved in my training was the the repetition of basic skills you know having something mastering a skill that's so simple that when you do it and you execute execute it perfectly it's just absolutely unbeatable so I think when you talk about that the building of that mindset or the champions then you know for me that was it I can just be a little bit better fantastic isn't it and you were awarded you know further down the track of course the scholarship to the Victorian Institute of Sport and I imagine I guess that's the next step isn't it the people you encounter there the services that you've got access to must have been a really profound moment or, or period of time in in your life and your career and your direction? Yeah, getting a scholarship with the VIS was life-changing in many ways for me. And when I first got the scholarship, when I knew that I was awarded the scholarship, I thought, oh, wow, that's so awesome. I wonder how much that is because I wanted to buy some new training shoes because mine had holes in them. And I wanted to go back to Korea desperately. And I thought if I can pay for a flight, because we used to have to pay for all our stuff, all our flights and our track suits and accommodation and sometimes they'd pay for a little bit of it so I, used, I was like wow if I can so when I went in for my meeting I was like so how much do I get <laughs> and they were like well it's you get it's the at uh, this dollar value in services and I was thinking oh my god I don't want services <laughs> I want money <laughs> like I need tax that's right and but I didn't realize the value of those services. So one of the things they said to me early on, which I actually really listened to and took hold of, was make the most of all these services that you're offered. So, you know, I engaged with the sports psychologist they recommended. I started to seek out a strength and conditioning coach and I uh, used the nutritionist and the dietitian there. I used the services with the athlete career and education program. And so something like that, for example, the Athlete Career and Education Program, they were very, so did, that was headed up by Deirdre Anderson. And that was way, that was very, I guess, you know, they're doing it a lot now. But back then that was, you know, I guess quite embryonic in getting athletes to have something outside of their sport. And so, you know, I chatted with Deirdre and she said to me, you know, what do you want to do, you know, when you finish or if you have an injury or you retire? And I always knew I wanted to be a naturopath or do something in nutrition and food. It was really a passion of mine. So she said, well, why don't you just start studying? And, you know, I said, well, naturopathy is a private degree and I'd have to pay for it. And the first subject is like $150 and I don't have $150, <laughs> you know, because every penny that I had, I spent on, you know, traveling internationally. So she said, oh, it's fine. I'll write you a check. She just got her checkbook out, wrote me a check for $150. And she's like, you just enroll. And I was like, I can't even do part-time. Like, that's so naff. She's like, yep, just go do it. So I did that subject, came back and I was like, I loved it. But again, I can't do the next subject. And so, again, she wrote me a check, $150. Yeah. 
And then after that, I came back and I'm like, I've got it. I can cover this now. And I reprioritized everything in my life to, to keep that study there. So then I studied alongside my training. And, you know, it's, it's not always easy. And sometimes you have to drop back your load or sometimes you can pick up more depending on international travel. But I'm so glad then when I finished, when I retired, that I had most of my degree done and it gave me something else outside of sport that I could focus on. It also helped me with my own identity that I wasn't just the athlete. I also had this other, you know, I could see myself in that career path around, you know, being a you know, healthcare professional. So, and also just my brain, like, you know, it's very much involved in the strategy all the time and thinking about training and to then switch to having to, you know, do study and assignments and exams and you know it was good for my brain to have to switch between the two it was healthier for my sport so yeah the VIS was amazing and even you know the sports psychologist that I met there so I had Noel Blandell who was through yeah. the VIS and I also had um, Jeff Simons who became part of our high performance team and you know I'm still friends with them today we catch up regularly you know they had such an influence in in my psychological preparation and you know, I think one of the things that, you know, we, that often gets overlooked is how much people, experts can bring to the table. So, you know, those two psychologists were both very different and yet I got so much out of both of them and I was able to implement their strategies, you know, both equally in, in my performance leading yeah. up to the Games and yeah. at the Olympics. Yeah, we'll come back to Jeff Simons a little bit later on. But I wanted to ask you about South Korea. Now, you mentioned it just before. It's obviously a huge part of your journey. When did you first go to South Korea, Lauren? Um, the first time I went to Korea was, I don't know, it must have been like 92. And No, yeah, something like that. No, it wasn't. It was after the World Championship. So first time I went to Korea probably was about 94. Right. And what... Obviously, to train and 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 to learn the craft. What what was the training like over there? Because some of the things I've read, it wouldn't have been for everyone. Yeah, so Korea training in Korea is something that's so different to training in Australia. And the first time I went was quite a culture shock for me. The the training, and we went to this university that. I mean, taekwondo in Korea is just everywhere. Everyone does taekwondo. You know, they do it in the high schools. They do it in the military, and military is compulsory for all men. So most, you know, men in Korea have done taekwondo as well, to, usually to uh, quite a high level. And one of the universi- universities that we went to was a martial arts union. So they had judo players and wrestlers and uh, karate, and just everyone's all training, and it's just this incredible mix of people. And you know, we'd get up at like two or three a.m. and we'd travel a couple of hours in the bus out of Seoul, and we'd get to this the mountains and we, we was, so this very first trip that we were training and you know it was minus 15 degrees and we were it was just ice everywhere and we were just you know we had all our scarves up around our balaclavas and ice all over our balaclavas and it was freezing and we had to run this this run and you know it was like up this mountain and right around and it was so pitch black and icy and we were all sort of tripping and falling over and as we came back around and we didn't know where we were going either because everything was just told to us in Korean and we our instructors weren't translating for us they're just like go 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 just follow (laughs) so we were like what and then as we came back around they asked us to you know one by one they're bringing us in and you know down for push-ups and I was like oh man down for push-ups 
But then they actually caned us with a bamboo cane. So they hit us just below our backside. And I have never, ever been hit like that. And I certainly, you know, I was never hit as a child and I, I'd never experienced Why? anything like that. And so, well, they used to use it as part of their training and they actually don't do that anymore. But it, it's to toughen you up and to make you stronger and to build, yeah, mental toughness and resilience, really. But the, the thing is, because where we come from and our background, that didn't have that effect on us. It was so it was really demoralising for us to be down on the ground, being beaten, you know, and yeah. the whole at the end of the day. So that happened to me twice that day, and I just couldn't believe it. I had the welts on my bum, you know, two weeks after I got back from Korea. It was really deep welt, and we'd been training so well, and we'd been doing, you know, fighting so well over there. And then after that happened, everything, the whole morale of the team just imploded. Everyone wanted to go home. Most people on that team never competed again or left the sport. It, it took a long time for me to understand, actually, that that's what they were trying to do. And one of my coaches said at the time, he was like, I don't understand why you guys are so upset. We, we, we asked them to do this because, you know, I grew up in Korea being beaten like this and it's made me so strong. I was trying to give you that strength. So I understood, even though it's not right, I understood sort of culturally where that, that was coming from. Yeah. So I vowed never to go back to Korea ever again, and I certainly never wanted to be hit. <laughs> and it ended up that they, you know, they then banned that later from, you know, hitting Australian athletes, which was which was good. And then I got the decision. I got a, I made a team to go back to Korea. It was later on that year, and it was part of this IOC international to, you know, we were trying to get the bid for. The, Taekwondo to be in the Olympic Games. So this was kind of a showcase event. I desperately wanted to compete, but ideally did not want to do any training afterwards and get caned again. So I, I sort of went, but I was very nervous to go. And, you know, I was reassured that we wouldn't get beaten again. And I ended up winning that competition. And, and part of that comp, like when I fought the Korean in the final, I felt like, you know, I knew the girl I was competing against. I'd trained with her at that university. I'd run up the mountains and the in the snow with next to her and I, that sort of made me I had this sort of mantra that I then took into the games you know many many years later that was you know two arms two legs the only difference is the head and that was like you know yeah. I'm the same as you I've run your mountain <laughs> you know what what happens up in between the years that, that really makes a difference so you know we didn't get hit and then you know I, I really formed a love affair with Korea and we went back you know I think I went back about 12 times and yeah. You know, I loved every minute of every time we went over there. But, you know, it's very different like that. It, it's a completely different level of training. The intensity is different. But I think that it's important to understand that and experience that because that if you're going to beat a Korean in the ring or an, an athlete that sort of trains at that level, you know, you have to have been able to endure that that pace. Um, and so it made it, I think it was really integral to, you know, to me getting better as an athlete, all the trips, you know, we'd go over often for a month or a few weeks and we'd really spend time going around and training at different high schools and unis because we just don't have the depth in Australia to have that many training partners. Whereas you go to any uni over there or any high school and you'll get, you know, world-class athletes to train with every day. So, you know, we needed all those sparring partners. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll be back with Lauren Burns right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome. 
Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with history-making Australian sporting great Lauren Burns. Lauren, you touched on your mantra before the break. We both have two arms and two legs. The only difference is in the head. I can beat you there. It's such a relatable mantra. But that mental strength, we touched on how it might have been forged in career all those years ago. Do you suspect it was something that was inside of you all the time? Or was it something that came out when you started Taekwondo? Oh, I think it probably came. That probably came out in Taekwondo. I threw... Through the training and through the discipline of practicing the art, you know, and I think that's what martial arts is all about. It really is the mind, body, and the spirit all together. And it, it kind of happens, you know, it's not like you just book in for a mind, body, spirit session and then you just enlighten, <laughs> but it's through the continual practice. So I think it did, I think it really um, was honed through, you know, continual practice and that that sense of constant improvement. And you'd go on to become a 12 time national champion, you'd, you'd medal at many other competitions out outside Australia, but obviously the Olympic Games, I mean, getting there, let alone succeeding there, requires enormous discipline, commitment, perseverance. I wanted to ask you about the training regime in the lead up to the Games. Let's start with how many hours a day at its most fierce level were you training a day to prepare for the Olympics, Lauren? I was probably training around seven hours a day leading up to the Games. So that would be you know, we'd have a session in the morning, so usually a strength and conditioning session. So sometimes that would be a really hard, intense, you know, power phase, or it might have been lighter. It would that you know would correlate with what was happening in our evening sessions and our periodisation leading up to big events. Then I you had to have a swimming session, like a pool session, one morning a week. And Wednesday nights I had off, so I did a yoga class, and I would walk as well. I had to walk a lot because that really helped with keeping my weight down. So because I was Competing in a weight division that I ne- I didn't normally compete at, so the Olympic weight divisions were different to our normal ones, and I decided to drop down further. So I had to make sure that I I did that properly and safely, and I didn't want to sweat it off, run it off. I didn't want to you know have to be you know starve myself too much, but I had to make sure that I was really lean and, and ready at that that fighting weight. And then I would do individual sessions and those individual sessions were probably some of the most important for me because I could then really focus on what it was that I was wanting to work on for my opponent. And then in the evenings we had our sessions, you know, high performance training sessions. So that was with all the teams. So we'd do that every night except Sundays we'd have off, Saturdays we'd just have a longer, more individual based session. So I'd always get to training early so I could get in the mindset of training and I'd always have something that I'd choose to work on even, you know, didn't matter what was happening in the class it could be you know acceleration or takeoff or you know something that I was looking at and then after class and this is probably the thing that took the most amount of time but really changed my whole athletic performance was I'd do a a long recovery so I'd walk to MSAC because we were training in South Melbourne so near that Melbourne Sports and Aquatic Centre and I'd do a full cool down in the water so I'd run and walk and kick and do all that up and down doing laps and do some hot and cold sit in the spa then drive home and I'd be pretty exhausted by the end of that so you know our normal session was two hours I'd get there an hour before then I'd do the recovery afterwards so it's you know it's quite a lot of time and then having to work and support yourself during all of that so I was working uh, living out of home and paying rent and bills and all of that as well so we were on the Olympic athlete program so we had a bit of money which I thought was pretty exciting and I was on about I think we were getting $42 a week or something like that 
so people think when they're like, oh, you're an elite athlete and, you you know, we're getting funding and, yeah, that was it. But we were happy because we'd never had that before. We'd always had to pay our own way. Yeah. So we had, at that point, we had trips paid for us and we were getting this, you know, $40, which covered a little bit of our petrol, I guess. Um, and we were really just so grateful to be in the games and, you know, to have our careers be aligned that we would, you know, we were sort of peaking at that time. All of the team was sort of a much older more experienced team. I wanted to ask about the weight. So you were set on the under 49 kilogram class that you, you touched on. I mean, you said you were trying not to starve yourself, but I mean, the list of sacrifices to meet that weight criteria alone would have been as long as the Flemington straight, wouldn't they? There must have been some really hard <laughs> moments there. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I always dropped weight for my normal category. So I would sit around 55, 54. Like a really lean training weight for me was 53. I would drop into 51 to compete and that was always difficult for me to do. But it was safe and I'd done it for, you know a lot and I knew how to get to that point without doing any silly things. So And for me, silly is, you know, getting in a sauna, running it off. I mean, the thing is you have you spend all this time doing this incredible taper that's going to make you fly on the day and then you, you know, go for a 5K run the day before because you're trying to sweat weight off. So it just ruins any of that tapering that you've prepared for. Mm. So I didn't want to be compromised. So there's normally eight weight divisions in Taekwondo. For the Olympics, there's four. And so they the divisions then are much wider. They're kind of 10 kilo gap. So it was like either under 49 or the next one was, you know, under 57. So it was like a whole different weight like class. The, the girls were much taller. They were dropping in from, you know, 60 something. And so 49 was actually a lot closer to 51 that I was used to, but it was, we did it properly. So I went to the VIS and we did bone density scans and all of the, you know, checking all of the body fat percentages and everything. And they said, look, it's unsafe for you to ever sit at 49. So we'll just get you down low and then you just hit that on the day. So that's pretty pretty much what I did but I always found that that lead into competition for making weight it would take me I would sort of start checking in with that about three months prior you know I'd start my walking I was you know eating you know changed the way I ate and the the timing so I would eat my main meal in the middle of the day I wouldn't eat late after training and, uh, and I just had a lot of things that I did I had to make sure I had enough you know protein and lots of good fat being vegetarian and so I started to just become really disciplined and really boring <laughs> oh, um, you know I wasn't going out for dinner with my friends and doing all that so but it kind of meant it, for me it was also part of the mental preparation because I'd done it so long and so many years that Mm. Okay, I'm getting ready for fight day and that, you know, I, I actually don't know what it would be like to go into an event not cutting weight. So like my teammate, Lisa, who was in my, my roommate as well at the game, she went up a weight division and she had the height. She could carry that. And so she got in the gym and she put on all this muscle. And, you know, she was like, her kicks were just lethal. Every time she kicked me in the guts, I nearly she sent me across the room. She was so strong that she was, you know, going to the dining hall and coming back and just going, oh my God, I can't I need anymore. It's just, I feel so sick, you know, and here I am laying there. Steam broccoli. I've had my steam broccoli. <laughs> yeah, that's I didn't want to go anywhere near the dining hall. Yeah, but it was it was very much part of that. You know, I felt it was that mental uh, preparation. And then I felt very clear, like going in, I just felt like, you know, I was strong and powerful. And, you know, I might have been 49 kilos, but I felt 10 feet tall, like an Amazon warrior. I felt felt huge. And I felt like I had, the, you know, a lot of mental strength because of what I'd just done. Awesome. Awesome. We're talking to Lauren Burns on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers funeral celebrating lives up next the day that changed her life forever september 27 2000
You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Lauren Burns is our guest today. Lauren, Sydney State Sports Centre, it's packed. They are hanging from the rafters and somewhat unusually for a Taekwondo tournament, as you outlined earlier, all those eyes are only on one court, on one ring, and you're on it. That's right. Well, it was, yeah, and very different to what I was used to. So normally at World Championships, you'd have six courts or eight courts and... You know, now they, they often have, you know, that one one at the end. But at the Olympics, it was just one court the whole day and that was all eyes on that court. So it was very, very different than what we were used to. And, you know, the the whole crowd was an Australian crowd. I mean, we never get that. There's so, very little you know, international competitions that are in Australia and certainly not ones that bring that crowd. So to look out into the audience and just see the familiar Taekwondo community, you know, you just there was so many faces that I was looking looking at and just, you know, recognising people that, you know, from all over Australia in the Taekwondo community. And is a home crowd like that a factor in something like Taekwondo or are you just so focused, you've got the blinkers on to such a degree that you just block all that out? Well, I think it is in any sport and, you know, the home crowd does have, you can't block out that sound, like Mm. there's nothing like it. And, you know, I mean, I know I've been to that many events where it was not my home crowd and I was fighting the person from, you know, the the home crowd. You know, my very first tournament was at Madison Square Gardens in uh, World Championship 93 and I had, I was fighting USA and, you know, the whole of Madison Madison Square Gardens was chanting USA and it's my very first competition. I'd never heard anything like it. So, you know, coming full circle, my last comp, you know, the Olympic Games and in the at the beginning of the game, so we were right at the end of the two weeks, but at that beginning, a lot of athletes were talking about the crowd and I remember just hearing so many stories about the crowd and thinking, wow, this is really quite a big factor. And then I heard Ian Thorpe talking on the radio, on television and he, I just remember, I never forget hearing him speak about the crowd and he was saying the crowd just lifted me up and it was so amazing and how it helped him swim and all this stuff and I was what you know like you're the greatest swimmer of all time how much did the crowd really help you but then I was chatting to another friend of mine who said that the crowd really put her off and she lost to someone that she you know beat quite a few times before and everyone chanting her name actually really distracted her so I didn't go to any other events really to watch and be a part of the games because it was so tiring and so draining to be mm. out in the crowds and in Sydney. But I did go to one and that was, I went especially to listen to the crowd and it was part of my preparation and I was really thorough with all of my preparation, much as I could have some kind of lived experience or do a visualisation in my head. And so I went along to, it was the Grant Hackett uh, 1500 metre swim final I just closed my eyes and I listened to that crowd and I imagined that that was my event and I felt the energy of the crowd because it it is, it's like you feel it all through your body. You know, you can't help but not feel it. And I felt like there was duality of breathing in the crowd, letting the crowd be there, but then also blocking it out because you can't be engaged in that emotion of the crowd, whether it's up 
up or it's down or cheering or it's booing. And, and so that held me in really good stead because when I competed, it was just unbelievable. And the noise at the state sports centre, because it's quite a small stadium, that 10,000 people was just like, sounded like 50,000 people. It was louder than the open because the acoustics in the main stadium just you know they filter the noise out whereas in the state sports center it was just echoing and you know people were chanting my name and every time I'd kick they would cheer and then if I didn't score hmm. a point they'd boo and even if I hadn't actually scored <laughs> scored a point it would be like well, oh well well, obviously, so well, hey, Taiwan's Chi Shu Ju, she clearly thought it was a factor. You beat her in the quarterfinal. She actually claimed in the aftermath that the loud cheering of the home crowd had influenced the judges. Yeah, that's right. She was probably my greatest opponent, actually. She was, you know, it was an un- unseated draw that we had. And so uh, I had her first and she would have been definitely my toughest opponent. She was the two times current world champion going in into that event. And yeah, she said the crowd was, you know, off-putting and it was too loud. And, you know, that happens everywhere at every tournament. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's not much you can do about it. And, you know, I've had it go against me so many times. But, you know, I've also had that, you know, it's like I was saying, my friend who was even put off by it for her. So even though the crowd was for her and cheering for her, it can be off-putting. So it is a very powerful thing. The, the crowd is amazing. And I think you have to really be prepared for that. And, you know, that's something that going to Tokyo the, this group of athletes will have to get used to you know not having a crowd Mm. like that'll be a different thing too like having the silence and to sort of prepare for that so I think noise is is something that you want to you kind of want to be ready for everything and you know I was even up at the AIS recently chatting with the the women's rowing teams and you know they were talking about the start line at Tokyo is, is you know it's next to a flight path it's next to a freeway where like a truck route and so often you can't hear the buzzer and and so things like that actually knowing that that's going to happen and then including that in your in your visualization or how it's going to be or you know it might not be the way it always is so you know you have to factor that in and that's one of the unique things with the game and pretty much you can guarantee things aren't always going to go to plan things are going to stuff up buses are going to go the wrong way you're going to be late to a training or warm up for your day you know that you hear those stories all the time and you, you really have to be ready to just be adaptable you know that's one thing that I guess COVID's taught us is being able to roll with it and just adapt and go with whatever situation so you know that might put these athletes in, in really good stead. And Lauren how vivid are the memories of the final so it's Cuba's Erbia Melendez you're 3-2 up and then of course there's the kick that would be right at home in a Hollywood movie as the final scene was it I wanted to ask was it joy or relief in the immediate aftermath? So I always knew I was going to win if I did everything in my power to win. So it was like coming from this deep part of myself in my spirit. You know, I had to give everything. I felt like that was, you know, I had it. I could take it. It was mine for the taking if I gave everything I had. I had all my smarts together. You know, I played the right strategic game and trusted myself to react, you know, in the, in the flow. And so I just had this sense that, you know, it was all about process. So process, process, process. And even in the fight, it was, you know, playing that game, winning, get, keeping, winning the points, keeping the points, defending the points, all of that. It wasn't about standing on the dais, getting the medal, you know, because of course, you know, that's what you want. You don't need to visualize so much. So even, you know, as I would do a lot of that mental imagery training was all about like being able to outsmart my opponents and come out of any situation. So as I was holding the point, especially in that last round, I was, I was mainly holding my lead I wasn't trying to really I didn't want to engage as much in the place um when the final buzzer went and I got that decision it was just like 
Yep, it was very process. And then it was as I stood there and the referee gave me the decision, that's when it started to hit me. And then I just was like, oh my gosh. And my coach picked me up and then I ran around the stadium. And But it actually wasn't until I got out into the hallway and the drug testing woman started to read me my rights. Or, you know, they have to tell you all the stuff. They're going to stay with you until you do a sample and blah, blah, blah. So she was chatting, talking at me. And I couldn't hear what she was saying. I mean, I've heard it all before, but I was, she was just talking to me and I sat down. I just sunk down on against the wall and I was like oh my god oh my god I just won oh my god I won the gold medal and, and it was sort of there in this dark hallway out the back that I kind of it really hit me when I was on my own in a sense of just like I did it oh my god and and again the next morning when I woke up it was like a dream and I thought did that really happen and I looked over next to my bed and there was all my tracksuit and the gold medal just sitting on top magic magic and you later attributed the win in the final to determination in a resolve never natural talent now can you get that far without natural talent though Laura? well i think you need a certain amount of physical ability um definitely but i, I think often people with natural talent only get a certain to a to a certain point so you know and, i mean i certainly see that in in athletes that i've worked with or mm. you know in our club in taekwondo some that just have this incredible talent and they're they're amazing and they have this real natural ability you can show them anything they can do it but in the ring you're not testing how fast your kicks are or how technically beautiful they are or even how strong you are you're test- testing uh, strategy and how to play the game that's all it is you know taekwondo in the ring at the olympics isn't a fight in the street it's a game and you're playing that that game and trying to score those points mm. so and you know so that's being really adaptable and being resilient and being able to outsmart your opponents and being creative in that space so i mean you have to have a certain level of being able to have those skills but i actually think you know my skill level and my technique you know improved so much in those last couple of years towards the games and that was when I really focused on those basics 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 but I wouldn't say that I had an you know, incredible natural ability when I started and certainly my coach wasn't seeing that he saw that in my brother my ninja turtle brother he had natural talent he was amazing but you know he didn't really want to keep doing it he didn't he went in a competition and did really well and my instructor at the time was just like wow this is great like we want to put you in the next tournament and he was like are you kidding me <laughs> I'm never doing that yeah. and never did it again yeah whereas I was the opposite he didn't want to put me in another one probably and I was like I'm going back for more that was good so anyone yeah. anyone who saw the Sydney Olympics Lauren will know how big a part Roy and HG played in it it was um a, a nice nice element of the games now they quipped as the wind's sinking in for you I suppose they quipped that all you wanted after your brutal dieting was a big and a pizza. <laughs> I Roy and HD just made that game. So so fantastic I listened I loved watching them every night and that's right that is all I wanted so afterwards I had friends who were living in Sydney and I had friends there and they were all saying you know like what are we going to go go and do Roy and HG and then come back to our place and we'll make you you know what do you want for dinner and I was like pizza and beer I just want pizza and beer so then they were trying to find pizza and couldn't end up going to the supermarket and getting bases and making pizzas at home and whatever and then when I arrived they had the pizza and beer but I was actually so bruised and so exhausted I could barely eat anything I was just not and I I actually had a little bit of the of alcohol like just a couple of sips because I had so many bruises and so many injuries that I just didn't want to swell up too much the next day and I know that's what happens if you 
you know, even have a glass or two and then, you know, all the bruising comes out the next day. So yeah. it's a bit boring. <laughs> no, well, I imagine if there was someone weighing less than 49 kilos, you probably would only get a slice in anyway, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's right. Well, your stomach shrinks. And, but what one thing I did before, like when I would cruise around the, the dining hall looking at all the food I was going to eat after the games, and because the dining hall is the size of a football field and they've got every different nationality there, like every kind of food you could possibly imagine was there in this dining hall. And so so after I'd had my steamed broccoli, I would just wander around like, and I don't think I've eaten McDonald's since I was a kid. And, but there I was, you know, standing every day looking at the McDonald's apple pies. And I was like, oh man, I remember this taste, like the crispy outside and the hot burn your tongue apples. And that's what I'm going to have when I finish. So like after I'd been out on that night, that, you know, going to my friend's house and got back late and the dining hall's open 24 hours. So, you know, wander at like midnight, I'm going to have the apple pie. <laughs> and then I get there and I see all these apple pies and I was like, Oh, that looks disgusting. I'm going to go get some broccoli. And I just went and had some veggies. So I didn't even have it after all of that. But, you know, you do dream of all the things that you, you know, you can't have when when you're cutting weight. It would have been the most thoroughly deserved McDonald's apple pie in history, no <laughs> doubt about that. Um, Lauren... It never would have lived up to my memory, though. That, that's it. That's a good point. Hey, Lauren Burns, been a pleasure to catch up today. I mean, a Hollywood film with a bunch of turtle costumes may have lit the spark, but your determination and resilience had the fire burning in you. It was a history-making gold medal and an amazing trailblazing journey to get there. Well done on all you achieved, and thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to... This is your sporting life. All thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.